We are in the third week of our new teaching series called Something Greater. And we're taking a look at what it means to live uh, a more, a more than a life that's just mediocre, more than a life that's just good enough. And we're doing that by looking at the life story of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Elijah. Last week we learned from the life of Elijah that God's goal for us is to be dependent, not on ourselves, but on God. And to accomplish that, he sometimes allows us to be in situations where we are weak so that we will be in a position to learn from him and to lean on him. The Old Testament story of Elijah is in the book of 1 Kings, and it goes back and forth between what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in the life of Elijah. And, and, pre, and God is preparing him for something greater. In order for Elijah to do greater things for God, God needed this prophet to be totally dependent on him, to totally trust God. So God weakens him. He removes his strength. He removes his ability to provide for himself and so that he has to learn to trust God. And it's from that place of dependence that we see Elijah's strength and power come. I also said last week that God is doing the same thing in many of our lives. We've suffered a setback perhaps in our job or maybe in our health or we feel powerless in our parenting or in our marriage or we feel unsuccessful in our ministry of, or venture that God's called us to do. Um, but God's teaching us through all of those things how to depend more fully on him, to not be uh, strong in ourselves, but to be strong uh, in God. And it's only then that the power of God is able to flow through us. And when the world looks at us, it doesn't see a person who has it all together. It sees a person who is strong and mighty in the power and in the grace of God. So today we'll get into that and a little bit about Christian hope as we learn from Elijah's life. So let's pray together, shall we? God, we are here again. We've come from our week filled with so many things. Some of us today may be filled with joy and excitement, others with sorrow and despair. Some may be filled with energy, others with weariness. Some are filled with love for you, others may wonder where you are, for they feel far from you today. But we've gathered together as a congregation and we lay ourselves before you with all the honesty we can muster and we give you uh, what we are and who we are, creating us, O oh God, clean hearts. Fill us with your spirit in this time of worship together so that we can be made more uh, holy and uh, in order to serve you in the places that you've called us to serve. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And we'll look at it in more detail, as I said next week. But what we're going to see this week is that God teaches Elijah a very important uh, lesson about himself, that things that separate God, the true God, from every false God. And what God shows Elijah about himself is going to answer a question that I think a lot of us struggle with. In fact, I know that there may be someone listening to me today who feels like you've lost your faith. Or at least at some point in your journey of life, you've, uh, you feel like you lost your faith. And if that describes you, let me ask you this. When was it that you felt like, felt like that? That you had just given up on God, that you lost your faith? And what were the circumstances? Chances are it had something to do with not understanding why God didn't show up to help you or to 
help somebody else that you thought he should or why he didn't change something or fix something for you when you had prayed for that to happen. Now, a lot of people that lose their faith lose faith in a false God or in a false projection of God. And what God does in this passage is show Elijah uh, four things about himself that help to address this very issue. So let's get into the story. The story is in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. We're going to start at verse 8 today. But let me give you a bit of background. If you remember from last week, God picked a fight with the evil king Ahab and his pet god Baal. Now, Baal was the god of nature, the god of rain, the god of the weather, and God picks a fight with Baal um, and says through Elijah, from this day forward, it's not going to rain except by the word of my prophet Elijah. Well, God puts Elijah then by a brook by the name of Kareth, east of the Jordan River, and he feeds uh, Elijah there by bringing in ravens who bring food and and water, uh, food and and meat and bread uh, morning and evening. This was to teach Elijah a lesson, and the lesson was that he could no longer take care of himself. He wasn't in a position to do anything for himself except trust God to take care of him. And then God does something, uh, takes the next step. He dries up the brook, and he tells Elijah to go to the town of Sidon, which is the hometown of King Ahab's evil wife, Jezebel, because there God has a widow uh, through whom he will provide for Elijah. Now, Think of it, how scary is this for Elijah? Elijah is a wanted man already because he has stopped the rain in the whole land and it's, they're, they're suffering this drought, this famine. And, and now God tells him to walk alone a hundred miles through enemy territory to his enemy's hometown. Elijah has no food and he's out walking unprotected on his enemy's home turf. So let's read the story. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So we read that uh, passage and we think, lesson learned, right? God is able to infinitely supply us in any circumstance of our life, even in the middle of a drought or famine, in, in an enemy village. And the pagan god, Baal, couldn't take care of his own hometown. He couldn't make it rain again. God takes care of Elijah in the middle of even Baal's territory. So the story really could end right there. 
But it doesn't. It goes on. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. And then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. And then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. And then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Now, there are four things in this story uh, about the true God that makes the Christian God different from any other God, whether that was Baal and the pagan gods of his day or the gods that people worship in our own day. Now, the first characteristic of the true God is that he is the God of the outsider. Of all the places that God could have sent Elijah to do miracles and provide in this time of famine, he sends him to a pagan widow in an enemy city. Do you know what the first sermon Jesus ever preached was? It was a sermon about Elijah. And it's specifically about this story. And it's recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 25. And Jesus says, Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Now the famine had affected everyone in this whole region, including the people in Israel. But the only one that Elijah was sent to rescue was a pagan widow woman in Baal's hometown. This truth made the Israelite leaders so angry they tried to kill Jesus after preaching his sermon. Now, I remember uh, when I first started out as a pastor, after my first sermon, everyone in my little church came up to me and patted me on the back. They were so proud of me. I'd just gotten through my first sermon ever. But here's Jesus' first sermon, and afterwards, people are trying to throw him off the cliff because of what he had said. God is a God of the outsider. Every other religion focuses on God rewarding insiders. This woman was an outsider in just about every possible way. She was a Gentile, which made, it, made her, uh, as far as the people of Israel were concerned, a racial outsider. She was a pagan, which made her a religious outsider. She was a woman, and that made her, in those days, a gender outsider. And she was a widow, which made her an economic outsider. Now, just as a side note, in the New Testament book of Matthew, which is the first of the Gospels, as you open the pages of the New Testament, the first thing you see is Jesus' genealogy, which in those days, um, you know, uh, was kind of functioned like a resume. Now, we're tempted to skip over this whole list of names when we start the book of Matthew and get into the kind of real meat of the story of Jesus. But 
when we're trying to establish uh, in those days your right to rule, you would do so by listing all the famous people in your family so that people could see just how awesome you were. So earthly kings like Herod would even uh, delete people from their bloodline who were kind of shady characters so people wouldn't know uh, about them. But when we read Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we find that not only does it not hide those whose lives were filled with dysfunction and shame, it actually celebrates them. It includes a lot of women which were never included in genealogies in those days. And not just any women, but women who had significant scars in their life. Every woman listed in Jesus' genealogy was tainted with some kind of scandal. Rahab was a prostitute and a Gentile that God saved from the city of Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. These women all repented. They came back to God and their lives were checkered by mistakes and shame, but God continued to bless them. I told you that their names are included in the line that leads us up to Christ, and I believe so that we can know that our names can also be included in that line that leads away from Christ, on the other side of Jesus. In Jesus' genealogy, Father Abraham is mentioned in the same list as a prostitute because in Jesus Christ prostitute and king sit down as equals so that what that means for us is that no matter who we are no matter what we've done there is always room in God's family for us we may feel like an outcast at times but we are not Jesus came for us we may feel worthless at times but we're not because Jesus purchased us with his own blood on the cross. In every other religion, their gods favor and reward the insiders. Their gods love you and accept you because you keep the rules. Their gods reward people for their goodness and for their superiority. But the one true God reaches out to the outsider because religion is not True religion is not about our ability to earn God's favor. It's about God's gracious love being poured out in grace and blessing as a gift upon us. So if you're here today and you're feeling a bit like an outsider, that's actually an advantage. It makes you a perfect candidate for salvation. In God's kingdom, weakness is always an advantage. It reminds me of a story in the New Testament of, Je of a woman Jesus went to see in the, in, the, in the area of Samaria. A woman who had been married five times, a woman who had a very checkered past, and the disciples wanted to avoid the area of Samaria, Samaria at all cost. This was an area that no decent Jew would ever um, walk through. But it was, it was always considered outsider territory. But Jesus said, that's where I need to go. And I still believe that Jesus pursues people uh, today who are on the outside. And for those of us who know God, that means that we become a friend. We become the friend of the outsider. If we understand the gospel, our life is going to be characterized by reaching out to people on the outside, people who are not in church, people who are far from God, uh, not just simply hanging out with believers and good folks, but reaching those who are not yet uh, connected to Jesus Christ. 
Let me ask you a question this morning that really gets to the heart of the matter. How many non-Christian people, non-Christian people are on your prayer list? How many non-Christian people do you pray for daily? If God uh, just this week decided to answer every prayer that you prayed this week, how many new people would be in the kingdom today because of your prayers? How many non-believers are you friends with? Do you have their number in your phone so that you can text them, go out for coffee, and maybe have that spiritual conversation or invite them to an event here at church? You see, there's a certain weirdness that goes with being a Christian. Have you noticed that? You show up in strange places. You pursue relationships with people who can't quite figure out why you're there or uh, what, you're, uh, what you're about. I know some of us are just naturally weird people, and I'm not talking about that kind of weird. I'm talking about being weird for a reason, you know, because we choose to be in places and with people that a lot of other people won't even bother with. God is a God of the outsider. Secondly, the true God is a God who sometimes contradicts and confuses us. Verse 17 tells us that sometime later this woman's son dies and she's confronted by a tra this tragedy, but watch how she responds. She doesn't know why God has let this happen. She says, O oh man of God, why, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Now Elijah is a prophet of God. And he has some of the same questions. He goes to God in prayer and he says, God, I don't get it. Can you help this woman out? Notice what they don't do. Neither of them is blaming God. The woman fully acknowledges her sinfulness and that God has every right to take her son. They don't try to explain this tragedy away with an easy answer. Turns out it was not because of her sin, but because of an epic battle between the pagan god Baal and Yahweh, and notice that Elijah doesn't promise her that if she'll just love and believe God, she'll never have any tragedy or pain in her life. They go to God in prayer. They ask for God's help. They're appealing to God's mercy. The true God is a God who sometimes blows our mind because he does things we don't understand, things we can't explain. He has rules. He expects us to live with high moral standards, but if the God... You worship doesn't do that, chances are you really don't know God, but only a projection of him. I like what the author Tim Keller uh, talks about when he talks about sometimes we worship a Stepford God, a God who feels just the way we do about moral issues, who never offends us, who never challenges us, who never confuses us. But he says that's not the real God. A God who conforms to our mind is usually just a projection of our own mind. When some people suffer, they assume that God doesn't care. They get cynical about God if they keep believing at all. Or they get angry at God. How dare you? Others turn God into some kind of magic genie that always heals and always blesses if we just show enough faith. And that works until it doesn't, which is why I know a lot of people in churches that preach that message who have lost their faith because God maybe lets their loved one die or, or they say, uh, you know, I did everything right. I named it. I claimed it. I was going to church. I confessed my sins. I thank God, you know, uh, every day, but God still let my loved one die. See, true faith is what we see here. Elijah and the widow 
come to God with humility. They come with unanswered questions, but they know that God is full of compassion. If we know the true God, we will have a humble faith. We believe that God cares. We believe that he wants our best, that he is good. He's a God of compassion and love, but we are humble enough to trust him even when things don't work exactly like we plan. Here's the third characteristic of the true God. The true God has power over death. The one thing Baal could not do was touch death. The true God has power over life and death. This is where all the world's would-be saviors fall short. A lot of things in our world promise salvation. Religions do it all the time. Buddha, Muhammad, political leaders do it. Hitler boasted that he was the savior of the world and and his Third Reich would last a thousand years. Lenin did the same thing, but today both men are dead. Even Freud boasted that his theories, um, that with his theories, modern man would have no more need for Jesus. Psychotherapy would one day replace the need for God. The one thing psychotherapy has proven unable to deal with, though, is our fear of death. We can manage guilt, we can manage our stress, but we cannot escape our fear of death, which is one of the most driving fears that human beings have. And for that reason, there was a Time Magazine article that said that psychotherapy itself has had such a poor track record that itself needs to be on the couch in need of psychotherapy. But there's a lot of uh, other false gods in our world today. Many people believe that money is a savior. But you know what? It can help us beyond death. Some people think beauty is a savior. And we can slow the aging process down a little bit, but we can't stop it. We can nip it and tuck it and tighten it and tweak it and, you know, twist it and lift it and color it, but our bodies still get older and saggier and weaker as time moves on. So let me ask you this morning, what's the Savior on which you are building your hope and your future? And can your God carry you beyond the grave? See, God shows to Elijah and to Israel that he has the power to do something that no other God can do, and that's raise the dead. By the way, right after Jesus' first sermon we talked about in Luke chapter 4, Jesus talked about Elijah, and then he went out and raised the son of a widow from dead. There's no other God that has conquered death and the grave. So before I move on to our final point, I want to point out one other thing, and I want you to think about how confusing this whole thing was for the woman in this story today. See, Elijah just shows up on her doorstep out of nowhere. She's starving because of this three-and-a-half-year famine, and rather than meeting her need, he asks her for a meal. And then after the whole deal is over and she's learned this lesson about trusting God, her son dies. What a confusing series of events this must have been. But here's the point. God had a bigger agenda than meeting her need for bread. Her greatest need was to come to know and trust God, the Lord of life. Do you ever get frustrated with God? That he doesn't get you into that school that you wanted into or get you into that relationship that you've kind of hoped for and provided you with that job or healed you from that illness? What if God, what if God has a bigger agenda? better agenda for you 
to bring you to know a God who's bigger than life, a God so big and so glorious that, that even if you're, you and your loved ones die of starvation, you have a hope that goes beyond the grave. You see, the point of this story is that knowing God is better than multiplied oil. It's better than even temporarily a resurrected son. And I say temporary because though he was brought back to life, this widow's son would eventually die. Every earthly blessing is temporary. Knowing God and the resurrection is what's eternal. If our bread multiplies and our loved one lives, that lasts only for a moment. If our oil runs dry and our loved one dies, that's only also for a moment. But if we come to know God, if we come to know the power of the resurrection, that's a blessing that will carry us through eternity. Here's the last point. The true God saves us through death. This final scene is kind of mysterious. Elijah puts this dead boy in his own bed. And then Elijah stretches his body over the boy three times. Why? Because stretching over the boy is a position of vulnerability. He has put him into his own bed and that, in his own place, and then he lays on top of him as if absorbing death into himself. This is the first account in the Bible of someone actually being raised from the dead. And please don't miss this. The account begins with the question, is my son dying for my sins? And God's answer to that is no. He's not. He cannot and then God has, has his prophet stretch his body over this dead boy, taking, as it were, death into himself so that the boy will live. Now, if you've read this, um, one of the similarities you may notice is the similarity between Elijah and Jesus. How will God save the world? It will be by dying in our place for our sins, stretching himself out on a cross and absorbing our death into himself. God saved us through his death. And he continues to work the power of his salvation in us through our death. You see, pr false gods always promise to save us. If you obey me, make me happy, I'll prosper you. That's different than Christian hope. Many so-called Christian preachers say, you know, obey God and God will prosper you. And sometimes God does do that. But what they omit is that the channel of God's blessing is often weakness and sometimes death weakness or problems are not a sign of god's judgment on our life it means that god is working his resurrection power in us if you're weak you have an opportunity to depend on god if you're in pain you have an opportunity to trust god and to demonstrate to everybody else that you have a hope that goes beyond the grave if you're experiencing some kind of hardship it's a chance for god to pour out his power into your life God saved the world through an innocent man dying in weakness. And if he's going to bring that power into our life, into our family, into our world, he won't do it through our strength. He will do it through our weakness and through our death. So again, the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in, in your weaknesses. When we experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, we can talk about the power of the resurrection. Just a closing thought. By the way, uh, the word Zarephath comes from the Hebrew word that means to melt or to smelt. The noun form means crucible. Zarephath was the place of the cross. It's also the first place God ever raised someone from the dead. The two things always go together. No cross, no resurrection. 
So when we experience a cross in our life, know that we are to rejoice because that's when God's power, resurrection power is close by. Let me just say that if you're here today and God has been speaking to you, I invite you to follow him. But you have, you have many questions. I'm not encouraging you to check your brain at the door and not have your questions answered, but sometimes what we need to do is take a first step of faith and then we begin to see the rest. Christianity is not a come see everything fully and then believe kind of faith. It's more of a see a little, believe, and then see the rest. And some of you here today are at a place where you need to take that first step of faith and then see what God does. God has something greater in mind for you than you can ever imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we wait on you today because you are our Lord and we trust that you know the very best time to fulfill your purposes and your plan and, and your promises to us. So we depend on you at all times. We especially depend on you when we feel weak and in the face of unanswered prayers and postponed dreams. So give us the faith and the patience we need to, to, to rest in your timing. You are our strength, and, and I'm asking you today that you would enable us to be strong in body, mind, and spirit as we wait on you. And as we listen to you and as you teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.